from the very start, the story Houston has been about um, Jesus and just bringing people into a relationship with Jesus and not just any people, not like, you know, super Christian, like religious people, like that's, you know, a lot of churches can do that. Like God put us here in like this kind of affluent, um, kind of secular part of Houston, um, I think for this purpose, to speak directly to non-religious, semi-religious, agnostic, atheist, skeptical, cynical Houstonians and to see if, you know, there's uh, just an opening in their heart um, for, for, for Jesus to consider Jesus and men, the things we've seen have been unbelievable. Like if I could just tell you the stories of people's turnarounds in their lives, and that's why we do it, right? It's not so we can have a great big church we're proud of or, you know, anything like that. It's because we love seeing what happens when people do that, when people really turn their life over to Jesus and uh, orient their life around Jesus as the foundation of their being, kind of. And, uh, and it's amazing to see the change that can happen. Since the story began two years and a week ago, uh, almost 200 people, somewhere right around 200 people, have either become Christians for the first time or have come back to Jesus after some extended period of separation. And, uh, and that is, uh, it's the reason um, that we're here. But I know there's also a bunch of people here sitting right here in these chairs who just kind of come to the story out of curiosity or you go through the motions of church or whatever to make the person you're with happy or whatever that looks like for you. Um, and you're not quite there. You haven't quite gone all in because, you know, most of you probably because you don't want to be, you don't want Jesus to mess up your life. Like you don't want Christians, you don't want to be one of those Christians, right? You don't want to be, you feel like you can be the same person at parties or you feel like your, you know, your life would just change too much, your social life would change too much if you became one of those people. That's like a Bible thumper or whatever. Like you're a little scared about that. And I totally understand it. But um, I've just been dreaming about this series we're going to be doing for the next seven weeks because when people are right there on the fence about that decision, there's always the same questions that they ask. People ask the same few questions again and again, and I thought, why not spend time between now and Easter talking about these questions? So the next set of talks between now and Easter, seven weeks, is going to be with some of the seven most common, frequently asked questions by people that are kind of on the fence. And if, if you're a seasoned Christian, I feel like, um, I, like I kind of have to start uh, with you. Because when we talk about questions, when we talk about doubts, um, Sometimes Christians are the first ones to get upset in the church because we shouldn't be talking about doubt in the church. We should be talking about what we know, what we're sure of, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, like it's stuff that we know for sure. And so why talk about doubt in worship? We're going to do that, not just in worship, but for 40 days uh, I'm writing daily devotionals that you can get every morning in your inbox. You're not going to get them if you don't sign up for them because I don't want to force them on anybody. And we're not, we're not going to put them on social media. You just have to go to the link and you're in the loop and sign up for them. You'll get them every morning, devotionals that I've written, dealing with doubt between now and Easter. I'd love to be in that conversation with you. But the reason we're doing this is because sometimes we Christians, I'll admit this, we get into a Christian bubble. We Christians get into a bubble where most of the people that we relate to are Christians just like us, and we forget how weird we sound to non-Christians. We forget how strange our worldview is to people that don't think the way we do. And we don't even acknowledge it, right? And so we seem so uh, self-assured that sometimes we just sound strange to non-religious people. Now, what we need to know here is that your non-religious friends 
who you wish would come to church with you or would go to church anywhere, or maybe your kids or your grandkids that you wish would engage Jesus, they have, it's not like they don't know about Jesus. Like they know about the church. Most, almost all non-religious Houstonians grew up at least around Christianity. Most of them probably grew up Christian. And at some point in their life, they just said, this isn't for me. And they walked away. They saw something or heard something they didn't like. A sermon just rubbed them the wrong way. Maybe they felt rejected or judged by Christians or a friend of theirs was rejected or judged by Christians. Or maybe they went to college and learned all about the history of religion. And, and, you know, to them, like Christianity doesn't look that much different. Maybe it's a little more sophisticated version of those ancient, you know, tribal cults that used to sacrifice virgins and worship the sun. Like Christianity is not that much different from that. It just sounds crazy. Uh, to them that educated people would sit around and, you know, talk about eating flesh and drinking blood and all this stuff. Like, why would anybody who's been to school sit around and stake your life uh, to something um, like that? You know, maybe they've witnessed that kind of thing in school and made their decision. Maybe they've seen some hypocrisy from Christians in the media. I know that never happens. Maybe they've seen hypocrisy from Christians. Like this week when there was just Christians up in arms about this Beauty and the Beast movie and how there's like a gay character. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Like he's ambivalent maybe in this, in this movie. And like Christians are like, we're not going to see this movie now. We were going to go see this movie about a girl falling for a beast. Like, but now this is a bridge too far, you know. Like people see, people see the hypocrisy, right? You'll go see a movie about a girl and an animal falling in love. But man, this, this, no, 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 no. You know, like uh, it's just... If you're in your Christian bubble, you don't see it, but you're the people on the outside looking in. It's ridiculous. And so we need to kind of take a step back and, and see what others see so that we can adequately articulate why we believe what we believe. Why we believe and do the things that we do. Why we believe in God. Why we worship Jesus. And I think, I think the first step for us is just simply an authentic acknowledgement of mystery. Man, I can't tell you how far that will get you in conversations with people that aren't Christians. Just acknowledging mystery because everybody shares that. That's common ground for everyone is that there's mystery in the universe. Now, people outside the church, your non-Christian friends probably think mystery is not allowed at church. That it's forbidden to have real questions and doubts. The church is where the best questions go to die, or at least for an hour, you check your brain at the door and come worship Jesus and eat his flesh and stuff, and then you check, get your brain on the way out and go be a human again, right? And so that's what your non-religious friends think you're doing here. Um, and it's because we've given the impression that mystery is um, forbidden, uh, and to them it looks like Christians are either too arrogant to know that we don't know it all, or we're too afraid to admit that we don't know it all. And so that uh, refusal to acknowledgement, acknowledge mystery is a non-starter for many people. But look, there's mystery in the universe. There's things you don't know. There are things we don't and can't fully know. We don't know why there's something rather than nothing. We don't know why we're sitting here for sure. Have you ever thought about that? Has that thought ever come to you? Why, why am I? Why am I? Why am I here at all? I mean, you ever sit under the stars in the hill country and, you know, just think, my goodness, what, why is any of this here? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't need to be. We don't know why there is something, 
rather than nothing. We don't know where life came from. We don't know how human life got here for sure. We don't know if life exists elsewhere in the universe or whether we're alone in the universe. We don't know if our universe is the only universe or if there's an infinite number of universes like that movie Sliding Doors where just things happen in different dimensions. You know, like we don't, we don't know. We don't know for sure. There's people that posit different theories, but we don't know for sure uh, if there's one or infinite universes. We don't know much about that brain in your head and why it's the most complex structure in the known universe. There's nothing as complex as your brain. We don't know why quasars exist, these random massive black holes that have jetpacks strapped to each end of them, it seems like, and they're just pulsing through the universe randomly. We don't know why they exist, and we certainly don't know why the mathematical equations that drive quasars are identical to the mathematical equations that drive the synapses in your brain. Your brain works just like a quasar, and nobody knows why. It's a mystery, and it's astonishing to atheists and theists alike. I don't know why this week 20 turkeys were filmed walking around a dead cat in a perfect circle. <laughs> it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Nobody can explain it. I don't think it's ever happened before. Everybody's at a loss. All I know is that a cat is dead, and that's one down. And <laughs> so... <laughs> I just lost half of you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Please uh, come back to me. But it's, it's a mystery. There's so much that happens in this universe we cannot explain and we do not know and understand. And too often Christians have said to that mystery, hey, God did it. If you don't know what it is, God did it. Get over it. If you don't believe in God, I'm sorry. I hope you like it hot. That's where you're going. God did it. God did it, and, uh, you know, no questions allowed. Get over it. And he did it the way he did it. I'm sorry you heathens can't accept it, but that's the way he did it. Completely tone deaf. Completely arrogant, taking the mystery out of the equation. And we lose people. We lose people when that's our approach to conversations, whether they're in person or on social media. We lose people, and that's on us. Now, those who are... Outside the church, what they see us doing is they see us filling in the gaps in scientific knowledge with something called God. And this goes way back. It's a phenomenon called the God of the gaps, wherein people, even before, especially before the scientific revolution, they just took things they didn't understand and called it God. So science hadn't explained the sun yet, and so we said, hey, the sun must be God. Or science hadn't explained fertility yet, and we made up a God of fertility. We said, you know, we didn't know what thunder was. It sounds scary and ominous, and sometimes people die when a bolt falls from heaven. Like, that must be a God, too, you know. And so we filled in the gaps in knowledge with things called gods, and when people hear us talking about our God, they hear us doing much the same thing. We have to be very careful to not just be so lazy as to fill in the, the gaps with some vague notion 
of God um, in, in such a, a matter-of-fact way. All right, so that's, that's where we are uh, beginning this series. And the first question we want to tackle today is the very simple question, why is there something rather than nothing? I'm sure we'll be done in about three minutes. So I'm just kidding. Settle in. Settle in, people. Grab your study guides. <laughs> it's going to be a journey. Here we go. Uh, you have study guides that hopefully will keep you on track if you find those useful for yourself or your small group. Why is there something rather than nothing? We're talking about purpose and existence today. The Bible seems to answer it in the first verse. You don't have to get past Genesis 1, 1, and the Bible seems to have an answer. There's something rather than nothing because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it would be very easy to just wash our hands of this question and belittle others that wrestle more with this question. Um, but we should listen to the critics of Christianity. We should listen to the critics of the Bible because um, there are many critical voices among, especially in certain segments of the scientific community, uh, militant atheist types like Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss and those guys who want to argue that quantum mechanics have allowed for the possibility of something to come from nothing without the assistance or guidance of any divine hand. And essentially, the argument, the most common argument that you're hearing in college classes and seeing online now um, and in, in TED Talks and stuff is that you just don't need God to have creation. Something can come ex nihilo, uh, from nothing, right? And so uh, quantum physics, uh, they've, they've uh, discovered that it, it's possible that something came from nothing with no good reason at all, and that's what happened. And so searching for any meaning beyond that is fruitless. You should just live this accidental life you've got. Enjoy it. Because you're lucky to have one. You shouldn't have one. A life. Um, and so that's all the explanation that you need. But... You know, there's not all scientists are the same. There's a difference between good scientists and militant atheists, right? And so just like there's all kinds of Christians, right? There's good theology and bad theology. There's good science and bad science. And if you, if you dig through the noise of the bad science, there's a much larger community of good science and good scientists who know there are some questions in the world that are beyond the scope of science. There's questions that science is not equipped to answer, and that's okay. There's some questions that are too big for science, like why is there something rather than nothing? And some honest, humble scientists will acknowledge that freely, like Alexander Vilenkin, who is a uh, physics professor at Tufts University, one of the smartest men in the world. He was recently asked, why is there something rather than nothing? And this is uh, his response. So quantum mechanics gets you from zero to this small size, and once you get to this small size, then you're able to, to, to use general relativity and Einstein theory to, to generate all the rest. Right. Now, this is remarkable and, and awesome, uh, but it is not something from nothing because you're starting with the laws of quantum physics, you're starting with the laws of general relativity. I mean, there's a lot of somethings there. This vacuum you talk about, as you said, is, is, is pulsing with energy and fluctuations and pressure and all sorts of things. I mean, there's a lot there. That's true, but uh, I'm not starting with the vacuum, right? Vacuum is what comes out of it. So uh, what I'm starting with are indeed the laws of physics, of general relativity and quantum mechanics. And uh, of course, uh, and these laws are assumed to exist in some sense, in some platonic sense, <laughs> uh, even prior to the universe, although prior I should put in quotation marks because there is no time. Um, and the question, uh, of course, is an extremely intriguing question of why these laws, who gives the laws, um, it's uh, a deep mystery. And um, 
Uh, I don't have much to say about that. I would like to. <laughs> Thank God for honest scientists. I mean, really, people that believe that faith and science must be at war with each other need to hear more from Alexander Vilenkin and more from C.S. Lewis and thoughtful Christian leaders, thoughtful scientific leaders who help us to understand that faith and science are in pursuit of the same thing, this idea of truth. And both good faith and good science assume there's something to be known in the universe. That's why we dedicate our lives to knowing truth because we believe it's out there. We believe the truth is out there. Anybody have that song in your head now? Anyway, uh, so that's, uh, anybody? No one. All right. Uh, so that's just me. I'm a nerd. I am a big old nerd. Uh, that's, uh, that's the idea, is that truth is out there. Truth can be known, and so we should try to know it. Faith and science are one and the same. And so uh, in terms of our, our pursuit, anyway. Now, whenever I consider questions uh, like this, I have uh, this battle inside of me. I don't know if you all do, too. I hope I'm not the only one, because this will be awkward. But I have this battle inside of me. I feel like there's two voices uh, competing for my attention. And the first voice is the cynic. And he's always the first one I hear because I'm, I'm cynical. That's, I'm a skeptic at heart. Like, and so if I don't watch it, you know, I'll just follow that first voice. And he always is looking for reasons to not believe in anything. The cynic... That first voice, he wants me to sound smart at parties. He wants me to be sophisticated. He wants me to fit in. He doesn't want me to seem like a religious kook. And so he never wants me to listen to the second voice. The second voice is no cynic. The second voice is a romantic. The second voice believes in love. The second voice wants me to just give in and get swept away by the enormity and beauty of creation and existence, the gift of life, and wake up every day grateful and look at the stars and say, oh my God, and feel the love of my wife and my kids and just get wrapped up in it all and just live. Live is the second voice's command. And the first voice is over here, don't listen to him, don't listen to him, you sound stupid when you talk like that. And the second voice is like, come on, man, live. Being cynical gets you nowhere, just live. And I've got these voices in my head, and I've got a feeling that some of you, all of you probably to some degree have the same kind of struggle going on when you face a problem, when you face a question, when you're not sure, maybe when you're tired or exhausted or life has beaten you down. God, where are you? What do I do with this? Some of us have crossed over that line and just listened to the first voice. When you have the two voices in your head, all you do is weigh the evidence before you and make a decision. And this is what we know. 14.7-ish billion years ago, the universe, time and space itself began. Now, it may have been a while since you really stepped back and thought about that, but let that sink in. Time began. <laughs> Just like Vilenkin said in the video, did you hear it? He said, uh, I should put quotes around that because there was no time before it, right? So time had a beginning. 14 point something billion years ago, time had a beginning when all the stuff of the universe that we see today in the Hubble uh, pictures and all this, like all the stuff, the planets and stars, all the matter and antimatter, all the energy, all of it was compressed into this incredibly, unbelievably small singularity. Unspeakably dense, 
singularity, no larger than the size of a, a seed. Until it exploded 14 point something billion years ago and it sent the universe expanding into space. And as it expanded, space was created. Space began, right? So time and space both had a beginning. Uh, and the explosion was so intense that 14 point something billion years later, we continue to fly through space because of that explosion. We continue to race through space. As members of the Milky Way galaxy, we are racing through space at a speed of 22,000 miles per hour right now, which explains my hair, I think, just like, and, and that doesn't even account for how quickly the solar system is racing through the galaxy or how quickly we are racing through the solar system, how quickly we're spinning around on our axis. It's unbelievable what we're doing right now and how it began so long ago. 4.5 billion years ago, about 10 billion years after that first bang, the earth was formed when gravity manipulated enough primordial gas and ice and stardust to constitute a new planet. 500 million years after that, bacteria were swimming around in the sea. And 4 billion years after that, just 200,000 years ago, humans arrived on the scene. For some reason, and I could spend a whole sermon talking about this, for some reason, the conditions in our corner of the universe were such that life was able to be formed. We don't know how. Life took shape in the cradle of earth, unlike anywhere else in the universe that we know of, because every single necessary condition was just so finely tuned that life could take shape. And no one knows how or why, but everyone agrees that statistically speaking, it never should have happened. Never. There are too many impossible you know, uh, combinations, too many irregularities that could have happened. Everyone agrees it shouldn't have happened. Stephen Hawking, the great physicist, said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would uh, have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Now, let me take a moment, leave Hawking on the screen for a second, because if you really wanna upset your agnostic and atheist friends, be the Christian guy who quotes Stephen Hawking, uh, because uh, it's a little misleading sometimes when we quote Hawking in church, because Hawking has also said things like, you don't need God to explain the beginnings of the universe, right? And so uh, Hawking was not, is not a Bible-believing uh, Christian by any means. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure all he's been doing lately is trying to sell books and get headlines. Uh, I think that movie went to his head a little bit uh, or something, but uh, nobody can really figure him out anymore. But the fact that he doesn't believe what Christians believe, and he said this anyway, I think is more telling than if he were, you know, a Bible-thumping guy. Um, the fact that he acknowledged this kind of thing. Now, this doesn't mean that the Christian viewpoint is absolutely right. This doesn't mean that we should fill that gap with God, right? We've got to be careful. But the fact that he is who he is, and he's talking about the fine-tuning of the universe being so extraordinary, I think, does tell us something. It just means to, to us, I think it means there's a mystery, and then there are some clues, and we get to investigate. Like no other creatures ever have, we have the capacity to investigate and to make a decision about what we believe and why. So what exactly do Christians believe about this question of existence. 
um, in our explanation of why there's something rather than nothing. Now, hold on to your chairs, folks, because I'm about to say something. I, actually, I always say this. We believe that it begins and ends with Jesus. Stop the presses, right? Like, <laughs> Pastor Eric's talking about Jesus again. We believe that it begins and ends with Jesus, and I know how religious and simplistic that sounds. But what I'm telling you is a philosophical statement for our understanding of the ground of uh, creation and our existence, the foundation of our existence. Now, one of the most remarkable things about the person of Jesus, his personality, is his insistence that he is eternal. We never talk about it, really. We just spent eight weeks talking about the personality of Jesus. We never mentioned that he insisted that he's infinite, that he's always been and always will be. It's kind of weird. And his friends and family, they just kind of accepted it when he said it. They didn't believe it. No one believed him. When he said he was infinite, they thought he was crazy when he said he was infinite. Um, and, and like, for example, in, in Luke uh, chapter 10, uh, when uh, Jesus' disciples had gone out, they had a successful mission. They come back, they're all excited, and they're like, Jesus, we did it. Ha ha, well, this is great. And Jesus is like, hey guys, well, that's great and all, but I saw Satan fall from heaven. And the disciples are like, that happened before the earth was even formed. And Jesus is like, I know, I was there. And the disciples are like, can we just talk about how good we just did? You know, like, they just wanted some credit, and Jesus had to go and, you know, one-up them with all this eternity talk. In John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees again. And the Pharisees mention Abraham as part of their argument. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, by the way, Abraham told me to tell y'all, hey. And they're like, what? what do you mean Abraham told you to tell us, hey? And he's like, yeah, he gave me a high five on the way out of heaven's door. Like that's almost a literal interpretation of eight, chapter 8, verse 58, is that Jesus and Abraham high five. Abraham was glad that Jesus was going to heaven. And Jesus is like, yeah, I was just with him. I was just with him in heaven. And, and the Pharisees... You know, they said, actually what they said was, we always thought you had a demon and now we know for sure <laughs> that you have a demon. But the truth is, everyone thought he was crazy. Even his flesh and blood. Even his family, his friends. When he said things like this, they worried about him. They tried to institutionalize him, like take him out of the public eye. Because he embarrassed them by saying things like, you know, I was just hanging out with Abraham. And, uh, and yet that's who Jesus said he is. So here's what you get to do. You get to take it or leave it. Here's what you can't do. You can't take the stuff you like about Jesus and leave all the rest of the stuff. Because if Jesus isn't really who he said he was, then he's certifiable. He, he's a lunatic. He, he's psychotic. Saying things like, yeah, I was there at creation. So you can either take Jesus for who he said he is or you can leave him behind altogether. And I understand there's good reasons for doing uh, either one, but clearly you know where uh, I land uh, on this issue. The reason I land there isn't so much about the words Jesus said as the change that took place in the people around him. And this is phenomenal that for all of his life when he would say things like that, people would roll their eyes People would try to take him away and hide him from the spotlight. But something happened in that fourth decade of the first century. Something happened to change everyone's minds. 
Something happened around the time of his death or soon after his death that transformed a bunch of doubting people who just wanted Jesus to be a guy who leads a revolution to change them from that into something else, into guys that died, men and women who died for their belief in the infinity of Jesus, the belief that Jesus was there before creation, he was there at creation, he's here now, and he will always be here because he is an eternal being. It's a completely out of left field idea, but something happened around the time after his death that made everyone believe it. Obviously, our explanation for that is the resurrection. And I know I know this is where I, I lose a lot of non-religious people. But this is where I start to sound like a revival preacher who's just wanting people to run down the aisles and, you know, pray the sinner's prayer at the end of the service and things like that. This is not for that purpose. I'm just, I'm giving you the foundation of the Christian worldview, right? Jesus' resurrection, we believe, is the turning point in history because God put on flesh and lived among us in something Changed in hearts, hearts like Paul's. Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was the enemy of Jesus, Paul, who made a living out of torturing Christians by dragging them out of their homes and beating them in public squares, Paul, who believed not a word of Jesus and his mission until he met Jesus personally, and then he started saying things like this. An educated Pharisee like Paul said this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace with it through his blood shed on the cross. What happened to change a rational religious mind like Paul from a normal guy doing his job to a guy staking his life to claims like that? Something, something happened to turn him around. And our belief, take it or leave it, is that Jesus came back from the grave and his resurrection signified a new beginning in the world order. Now, this is uh, obviously not an easy thing for non-religious people to accept. But what I want you to do, if you're in that camp, is to give me five minutes here. Because the resurrection is the beginning of a new worldview, right? So it's, I want to explain the rest of it to you. And I want you to compare the Christian worldview uh, in terms of our existence with other options, other worldviews that are out there. Maybe the worldview you're espousing right now. You probably have heard of Occam's Razor, uh, the uh, idea that when you have multiple possible uh, solutions to a problem, to any given problem, then it's probably the simplest solution that's most likely right. Not always, but most likely. Part of my uh, devotion and allegiance to the Christian worldview is how simple and how elegant it is. I broke it down into five quick parts here. And this is what Christians believe about this question of our existence. I want you to compare this to what other people believe and maybe what you believe. Number one, 
It was God who set the universe in motion, a creator. A creative hand set the universe in motion, and we believe that God is love. Now, we don't believe that because it feels good or is like touchy-feely. We believe that, Jesus said it, obviously, but we believe that because philosophically speaking, in the known world, there is no higher expression of our existence than love. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And so if God is the ultimate being, then God is love. So that's where we begin. Second, we believe that human beings are uniquely capable. We're uniquely equipped to impact and change the future. No other species that we know of in the known world can change the course of events. Are stewards over creation and stewards of each other. And yet, often we've abused that power and we've chosen self-interest over good stewardship, causing a chasm between us and who we're supposed to be in God. Third, we believe that Jesus is the creator in the flesh, that he broke into time and space, that he intervened in human history and walked among us for the cause, for the purpose of love, because God is love. Jesus intervened because God wanted to be in intimate relationship and connection with creation again, and Jesus intervened to be that bridge. Fourth, the resurrection of Jesus means the world can never, will never, your world will never overcome the love of God in Jesus. No darkness, no death, no nothing will ever overcome his love. And fifth, people, you can orient your life around Jesus to discover your purpose, the purpose of your existence, which is love. God is love, and your purpose is love. Now, that first voice He doesn't like this very much. That first voice, man, he's loud. And he will say to me, you don't really believe that, do you, Eric? Look around the world. What is it about this world you live in that makes you believe, even for a moment, that the purpose of it all is love? I mean, you're telling me that this broken world, this dark, broken world where death seems to reign supreme and suffering is everyday reality, right? What is it about this world that tells you that the one who created it is love? And this God, by the way, if he's love and if he's God, like you say, he knew it would be this way before he created anything, before he put us in this situation, and he did it anyway. What kind of love is that, says the first voice. And the second voice is there all along whispering to me, it's the very best kind. The very best kind of love. Because love isn't love unless there's freedom to fail and fall. Love isn't love unless there's a risk involved. I have a friend in Kansas City who lost a daughter when she was nine years old, lost her to cancer. He was there with her when she was born. He was the first one to hold her and look into her eyes. And he was there with her when she was diagnosed. And he was there with her as she suffered, there with her as she died at nine years old. And I will never forget the day he said to me, Eric, if I could do it all over again, I would do it exactly the same, even if I knew the end. Because the potential to love and be loved by a nine-year-old for nine short years even is enough to overcome the risk of loss, the potential to know love. We all know it. Every parent here would say the exact same thing. We know this world is broken. We keep having children. Why? 
If the world is such a bad place, why do we keep bringing children into it? Because the potential to love and be loved is much greater than any risk of any loss ever. Because we know, atheists and theists alike, we know that we're here to love. We know it. Every good story we ever tell indicates to us that's why we exist is to know love. And the Bible is the best story that tells that the best way possible about a God who loves us so much, a God who loves us like that father loved his daughter, a God who loves us so much that he would not let us go through this alone, that he endured what we deserved for us on our behalf to know us, to know you. There's no better love than this. Someone lays down his life for his friends. It's just the love of a father who loves his children so much that he'll suffer anything to make sure we're not afraid of the dark, to make sure we're not afraid to die. Yes, falling in love is scary. Yes, you might get hurt. Yes, getting married is scary. Yes, you might get divorced. Yes, having kids is scary. Yes, you might lose one. Yes, the world is a scary place, but the potential for love makes it all worthwhile. I believe this is why Jesus is the source of your existence. I believe this is why Jesus is the foundation of your being to help you understand the way that you're created to love and be loved. There's something you're created to do. There's someone you're created to be, and Jesus can show you that. All you need is a little bit of faith. Jesus said, you don't, even need, you don't need a lot of faith. You just need a little bit of faith. Faith the size of a seed, he said. Faith no bigger than that one singularity that once contained the whole universe. Jesus, he's done it before. He will foster that faith and grow it into something you never could imagine. Jesus, he was there when that singularity gave way to the universe. Jesus is here now. You can trust him just a little. Trust him just enough to give him the first five minutes of your day, every day for the next 40 days. The first five minutes. You don't have to become a religious kook. You don't have to take your Bible around and show it to everybody. You don't, need to, you don't need to do that. You just give him the first five minutes. Let him show you who you are. Let him show you what you're here to do. Let him show you the love of God that already lives in you. Let's pray.